Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. So up until about the age of 21, I had never thought much about diamonds. If you'd asked me, Dave, what are the four C's? I would have given you a confused look and said, I thought there were seven uh, seven C's, but what are the four? Thank you, that was a good joke. Uh, I thought there were seven, but there's, there's four C's. And so you said, I would have given you this blank stare. And I knew, okay, with diamonds, carrot has something to do with size. We know that carrot has something to do with size. The bigger, the better. And I knew they were supposed to be sparkly. And uh, I also knew that they were the hardest substance on earth. And so that, that criminals could use them to sort of cut holes in glass so that they could escape. If you watch cartoons, you know that diamonds are good for that. But then you go shopping for an engagement ring and you quickly realize how much you don't know that you don't know. There's cut, there's clarity, and there's color. And, and quickly you find that you know the difference between an SI2 and a VS1. And you spend so much time looking through a jeweler's loop that by the time you are ready to shell out a couple thousand of your hard-earned dollars or take that credit, which interest-free for like the first six months, um, uh, before you, know, you shell out the big bucks, you, you, you feel like you are qualified to be a, an honorary certified uh, gemologist. And you can tell a truly brilliant diamond from one that's just, you know, meh. So to pick the right stone, you've got to get up close and, and personal. You've got to learn the language. You've got to learn what you are looking for and what you're looking at. You study, you compare it, you look at it from every facet and angle to appreciate its true beauty. It's not just a tiny, shiny rock. It is, upon closer inspection, a thing of immense beauty. If this is true of just a, a stone, how much more so is it the case with grace? 
Grace is it's a word, it's a concept, it's at the heart of Christianity. But it's one that we sort of throw around all the time, casually, maybe without always looking up at. I don't think it's too bold of a claim to make to say that amazing grace, right? That's the anthem. If you had to pick an anthem for the Christian faith, that's at least going to be in your top ten. Maybe even at the top of the list as a, as a, a song that captures the very essence of the Christian faith. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. But to steal the title of a book that was popular, really popular 20 years ago, what's so amazing about grace? And so to answer that question, to look at that question, to see the true depth of the endless beauty of grace, we're going to spend the rest of the summer studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because when we do, we will be able to answer that question, what's so amazing about grace? By the time September 10th rolls around, that's our church kickoff, September 10th. Put it on your calendars. Food truck. Bouncy, bouncy house is confirmed. Food truck is like 80% confirmed. Uh, by the time that date comes around, you will be an honorary certified graceologist. And we will realize that, that grace, man, even if we appreciated it, we realize by taking another close look at it, just how amazing it is and how far too often our understandings of grace are far too small and limited. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a letter about grace. Capital G, grace. Grace that doesn't just include you or me, but it's the entire universe. And Paul begins this letter a little differently than his others. So normally he says, I'm Paul, this is, you know, who I'm writing with, and uh, this is who I'm writing to, and then he immediately goes into this prayer of thanksgiving normally, saying, I thank God for you and everything I've heard about you and everything he's doing in you. But in this letter, it starts a little different. Because Paul is writing about grace, that's his theme, his topic, before he can even thank God for the church that he's writing to, he has to break out in praise because grace is just that amazing that he can't do anything else but extol God because of it it before he gets to anything else. And when you really understand grace, then you really understand why you can't help but stop and worship before you do anything else. It's just that good. It's just that amazing. And this opening, opening blessing that Paul offers in verses 3 through 14, in the Greek, it's actually one long convoluted sentence. There's, you know, our translators put a bunch of periods in there. We divided it into several sentences. But in the Greek itself, it's, it's just got you know, one subject and, and one verb. And the rest of it is just like Paul is so breathless going from phrase to phrase, clause to clause, that, that he can't even be stopped. He's like someone when they tell a story and they're so excited that they just keep running on and on and on and on. And they don't even pause to take a breath. So with this breathless blessing, an amazing portrait of the sheer immensity of God's grace emerges. A a portrait where we hear echoes of grace coming from the very depths of eternity. And and, and we we, we see how it, it reflects and refracts across the breadth of scripture. It's a portrait that shows us that the grace we see in the story of Jesus and in the stories of the Old Testament, it's the story 
of everything. The entire universe, the whole universe in Paul's understanding is graced. That's where it came from. That's where it's going. And so Paul is saying, I'm I'm letting you in on a secret of existence. He calls it a, a mystery. And he's saying the universe isn't a product of random chance. It's not empty or purposeless or infinite. No, the operating and ordering principle of everything is grace. Despite all the appearances to the contrary, the reasons for which he is going to deal later, Paul says that grace is at the center. That everything was made by and for grace because everything was made by and for Christ. And so the key part of sort of what Paul is is trying to show us comes in, 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 in verses 9 and 10 where Paul writes that God was making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that in Christ, in Jesus, we are let in on a secret. A mystery is revealed to us. And the mystery is God's plan for the fullness of time. And the word that Paul uses there for time is, is kairos. So there's chronos time, you know, chronological time that you have on a watch, calendar stuff. But there's kairos time, seasons, God's special times, God's special moments. So he's saying this is a plan that was revealed at the right moment, the special moment, a plan for the fullness of time on God's time. And it's not just a a plan, but it's, it's this word oikonomia, which is where we get the word economy. And it's a word that meant the sort of the household manager, the plan that they would use for running the estate of a wealthy landowner. So Paul's saying, here is God's blueprint, God's business plan for everything, if you will. And so Paul's message then, what he's saying I'm going to show you in this letter is that one of the best parts of being a Christian is that God shows us the business plan behind existence. He shows us the blueprint of life. We get to know what God is up to, and it's a plan to tie everything together in his son. There's a you know, joke in England that all roads lead to London, somehow. You get on a road, somehow you're going to end up in London. And in Christianity, it's all roads lead to Christ. And that's how big grace is is it encompasses everything. Everything we see, Paul says, and everything we don't. And so grace then isn't just the watchword of the Christian faith. Understanding grace is the key to understanding everything. And it seems like a a very immodest claim to be making. But if we're following Paul, we understand that if grace isn't everything, then it's nothing. And so in this one breathless paragraph of worship, Paul focuses our attention on on three aspects of grace that he really wants us to understand. He's saying, if you want to know what God's grace is about, then we're going to start by looking at these three things. Grace means that we're chosen, we're redeemed, and we're given a future. So chosen, redeemed, given a future. Those are the three aspects of grace we're going to look at this morning in our quest to become graceologists. The first thing that Paul says about God's glorious grace is it means that God has chosen us or predestined us. When we talk about 
this theological concept of predestination, God choosing beforehand. Uh, we usually think of one theologian in particular, John Calvin, for better or for worse. Calvin has sort of become associated most exclusively with this doctrine of, of predestination or election. And he said it's the foundation and first cause of all blessings. And what he means by this is simply that behind every blessing is the reality that God in Christ chose you. And the idea of being chosen by God is troubling, especially if we think it sort of means not choosing some other people, then, then that gets troublesome. But even saying that God chose you before you chose him can be troubling because we as modern people like to think that when it comes to God and religion, we're the ones who do the choosing. Thank you very much. So God can make the offer, but it's on us whether we decide to accept it or not. But the message of grace is that behind everything is that before you chose God, God chose you. And the only reason you can make that decision for Christ is that Christ made a decision for you. And if you're uncomfortable at this point, that's okay. Uh, But one of the commentators I read this week I think had some really helpful words. He said, The doctrine of election or predestination is not raised as a subject of controversy or speculation. It is not set in opposition to the self-evident fact of human free will. It involves a paradox that the New Testament does not seek to resolve and that our finite minds cannot fathom. I think that's, that last part is really helpful. It involves a paradox that the New Testament does not seek to resolve and that our finite minds cannot fathom. The paradox of predestination is that free will is real, And that predestination is real, and we're never going to be able to work out the relationship between the two to our ultimate satisfaction. But paradoxes are beautiful things. Uh, The great G.K. Chesterton, who I am a fan of, you may know, may be clear if you know me at all. Uh, Chesterton said, a paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention. So when we are confronted with a paradox, we see something that we should really be paying attention to. Not something that we should be seeking to resolve but something that we should be paying attention to. And I think nowhere is that more clear within the Christian faith, which is filled with paradoxes. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. And we see that very clearly in, in this question of the relationship between predestination and human free will. And one last thing on this before I, I move on to what exactly God is choosing us to do because we get so focused on this choice that sometimes we forget, well, what, is, what does it say about what God is choosing us for or to do? Uh, that there's a, a, a pastor, a guy named Nicky Gumbel, who he's the, the, the rector, the vicar of Holy Trinity Church, Brompton. It's in London. And he's most famous for probably founding the Alpha Course. If you've heard of the Alpha Course, it's like a kind of an introduction to Christianity for people who aren't Christians or who are skeptical or curious. Um, and it's all over the world now. But uh, uh, as he's talking about this, um, and he does the Bible in One Year app, too, that some folks are doing here. He says, you know, all right, if you want to understand this paradox or think, think about this paradox, you know, um, he says, think about, you know, the pearly gates, and above them on the outside is this sign that says, free will. So you decide you're going to walk on in. But then you get on the inside, and the other side, there's another sign on the other side of that same sign, and it says, predestined. It's the paradox. But what we might miss is, is what is God doing? What is God choosing 
for. And so Paul says that God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. And the other is that we would be adopted as sons and daughters. I don't want to dwell on this metaphor of adoption because it's a very, very, very powerful one. And there, I know there are so many adoption stories in this congregation. People who have adopted or who are adopted or have friends or family who have gone through that, that process. And so we've all got some kind of adoption story. And so we know the sort of the stereotypical untruths about adoption, right? That adopted kids aren't fully your own in the same way that a biological child would be. That's a lie, but if you gave people sort of truth serum, they might admit to entertaining such notions somewhere, somewhere in the depths of their soul. But the beautiful thing about adoption is it means that, that this child was chosen, that, that your family picked you. And so far from being a less than as a child, you are actually in some ways more than those other biological kids, they just came the usual way, you know? Boom. Nothing special about that. I mean, they are very special. But, you know, you get my point. But, but, but an adopted kid, no. Your parents picked you. They chose you. And you have the same identity and the same legal status as biological children. And this is amazing to ponder when we think about human relationships, but, but then we apply this to what Paul is saying about God, and it's even more mind-blowing. Because we know that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. But because he chose us from before the foundation of the world, we, we have this exact same relationship with God that Jesus does. It's almost blasphemous to say, but it says it right here. That God chose us to have this exact kind, same relationship with himself. And that's what's so amazing. Yes, that's what's so amazing about grace is that we are called God's daughters and sons, not in some sense that we are lesser than. And God looks on us as a way of sort of second-class children. And we don't have the same origin as Christ. That's true. That's a, a, a thousand percent true. But we do have the same identity and status before the Father as his children. So what's so amazing about grace is that we have been chosen to belong to God's family in this way. And in a world where we constantly are faced with rejection, where we constantly feel less than, where we feel alone, the message that resounds across eternity is that grace means that God chose you to belong to him. What's so amazing about grace is that you matter to God that much. And this shouldn't strike us as a huge surprise because this is how God has always worked. God chose Abraham from all the families of the earth to bless, to be a blessing. And God chose Israel from all of the nations to be his treasured possession. And he chose you apart from any other person to bear that name, son or daughter. That's how grace works. So that's one part of grace. You're, you're, you're chosen for this incredible status to belong to God's family. But the good news isn't just that we're chosen, but also Paul focuses on that we are redeemed. And what's so amazing about grace is that we know that even if we are God's children, the truth is we are God's wayward children. 
right? We've taken all the blessings we've been given from being a part of God's family and we've squandered them. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In the words of Isaiah, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And of course, the most story, famous story of this is the prodigal son. The story of God's children taking God's blessing, taking the riches of God's grace, and throwing them back in God's face by wasting them on nothing. So we take what God has given us and we trade it for the best that this world has to offer, acceptance, adulation, comfort, because being God's son or daughter isn't enough. We believe that lie. And so we sell God out and we sell ourselves into other families and in service of other gods, you know? What do we want more than to be middle class, middle American, white collar, professional, educated, hip, bourgeois, religiously respectable people? We think that's better than, that's good enough. What's so amazing about grace is that God doesn't leave us to such vanity. God doesn't leave us in our slavery to other gods that will use us and then dispense with us when they're done. Throw away gods in a throwaway culture with throwaway people. Paul says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. And the language that Paul is using here comes from the slave market of Paul's day. To redeem a slave was to pay the price to the owner of that slave. And this word for forgive, it it means release. And so the idea is that you would manumit your slaves, free this slave. And so what's so amazing about grace is that Paul pictures us as being bought and sold in the slave markets of this world. And once, they, they still exist, by the way, right? Especially women being bought and sold, what we call human trafficking now. Slavery by another name. And so Paul is saying that Jesus entered into that market and paid the price for us, the ultimate price with his own blood. No expense was spared. And when he did that, it wasn't so that he could transfer ownership. You know, one person buying another person so that we could become his property. Instead, it's so that he can forgive us, release us, set us free. What's so amazing about grace, the amazing story that we tell about grace, is that God wants us to be free. He wants us to be free from sin. He wants us to be free from pain, to be free from broken relationships, to be free from disease and death, to be free from anxiety and depression, to be free from loneliness, to be free from grief, to be free from, you know, ennui, to be free from exhaustion, to be free from fear. What's so amazing about grace is it means that whatever holds us captive, God is willing to pay whatever price and go to whatever lengths to free us from that. This shouldn't surprise us. This is how God has always worked. The central story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, is the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt through the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. But what's so amazing about grace is that this first Passover merely foreshadowed Christ, our true Passover, 
who died to liberate us once and for all. And so what's so amazing about grace is that once and for all, that debt is paid. No one or nothing can ever own you again. So grace means we are chosen by God to be his sons and daughters. And second, we've seen that grace means that Christ paid the ultimate price in order to set us free But the last aspect of God's amazing grace I want to look at this morning is how grace gives us hope for the future. Grace means, in the words of Paul, that we we have an inheritance. Because the truth of the matter is that, you know, we say, okay, grace means that God wants us, through the cross of Christ, to be free from all of those, that litany of things I listed, all those bad things that we face, we want to be free from. And, And Christ wants us to be free from them, and he has freed us from them. But right now, we're not. We're muddling through a lot of them. We still struggle with them. And we know that we will continue to do so for the rest of our lives. We can certainly experience degrees of victory over those things in the here and now. Things can certainly get better. But the truth is, and this isn't breaking news here, we're all going to die. We all have a pre-existing condition that will kill us. And so what's so amazing about grace is that because we've been chosen by God for his family, because we've been bought back and and brought back into the fold through the blood of Christ, we have an inheritance waiting for us, the inheritance of an eternity spent in the presence of God. And though we have to wait for our inheritance, it's not just pie in the sky in the great by and by when we die. Paul is saying, God gave you the Holy Spirit. This is a down payment. A guarantee of our inheritance. Which means that God's gift of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, which awakens in us in increasing degrees of, of faith and hope and love, this is the first installment of a forever payment plan. When someone wins the lottery, and, and, and this comes up especially when folks win the Powerball, they're given a choice. Do you want the lump sum or sort of the payment plan for the rest of your life? And almost universally, they say the smart thing is to take the lump sum because you're guaranteed the money up front. And guess what? You don't know how long. Uh, If they're making payments, you don't know how long you're going to live in order to receive them. And the average age of of a person who wins the lottery is, you know, not young, typically. But... What if you were told that you could opt for an infinite installment plan, that you would receive a payment from your winnings that would continue forever, that you could pass on to your children and your children's children, and this could continue ad infinitum? Of course, everyone would opt for that. And the most amazing thing is is that Paul says that this down payment is the Holy Spirit. Usually when we think of a down payment, we think of something small. Okay, it's small in comparison to what we will receive later. But God's guarantee of the future inheritance that awaits us, the very down payment that he makes is his own presence with us. If the Holy Spirit, which is God's presence, God's own very self with us in our midst, is the down payment of what is to come, can you imagine the glorious riches of God's grace that await us. If he's already given us that, what more could there possibly be? 
It, it beggars belief. It, it's beyond our capacity to imagine and fathom just how wide, deep, and vast, and immeasurable this inheritance is. What's so amazing about grace is that we cannot comprehend just how amazing it is. It is an inexhaustible treasury. This shouldn't surprise us because this is how God has always worked. When he led his people out of slavery in Egypt, God gave them an inheritance, the promised land, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey that was to be their dwelling place. In Christ, our inheritance is no longer the promised land, and neither is it, you know, heaven, as many of us have been led to believe. Our inheritance is an entire cosmos, which will have been redeemed and renewed and remade through the resurrection power of Christ so that it will be flooded with God's glory and there will be no more death or decay. So what awaits us is a universe filled to overflowing with the grace of God. That's what we hope for. That's where we long for. A world where Jesus has made all of the sad things come untrue. So brothers and sisters, all we've done this morning is dip our toe into the bottomless ocean of God's grace. But we can rest in the knowledge that grace means that God chose us. That Christ died for us and he gave us the spirit as a guarantee that he will live with us and us with him forever. And that all this was no accident, no afterthought. But it was God's plan and purpose from the very beginning. That's what's so amazing about grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please pray with me.